This is Knowledge History D&D, Episode 4, The Making of Dungeons and Dragons, 1972 to 1974. Part 1, The Fantasy Game. On a November night in 1972, Dave Arneson and a few of his friends from St. Paul visited Gary Gygax in Lake Geneva. That night, Arneson demonstrated a game he called Blackmore. The game was set in a medieval fantasy world of Arneson's own creation. It was a cooperative game and involved more storytelling than Gary had experienced before. When the players engaged in combat with Arneson's monsters, they used Gary's chainmail rule set. Trekking through Arneson's six-level dungeon reminded Gary of being a kid and exploring the tunnels under the abandoned sanitarium with Don Kay. Gary later said of that night, We ran into a troll with magic armor, and we fought him, and killed him, and took it. Arneson's Blackmore took all of Gary's favorite things and mixed them into a cohesive gaming experience. Wargaming, medieval settings, exploration, fantasy novels, miniatures, and dice. When the group was finished playing Blackmore, Gary was so excited he couldn't sleep. He wanted to play more. The next week, after returning home, Dave Arneson received a letter from Gary. Gary asked Dave to send him any rules or notes he had for Blackmore. Arneson was not an experienced game designer, but he cobbled together what he could. He sent Gary 18 pages of notes, but Arneson's lack of organization made these initial rules clumsy. Gary looked past the rough edges. He wanted to turn this experience into a written game. He took what he could from Arneson's notes, the rest he took from his memories of playing Blackmore, and with that, he wrote furiously. Less than a month after seeing Blackmore in action, Gary had written a first draft of what he called the fantasy game. Just like Arneson's Blackmore, the fantasy game had a fantasy setting. It was cooperative, it involved a strong narrative, and it used the chainmail combat system. All in all, it was a 50-page manuscript that, above all else, was different than anything the wargaming world had seen before. And Gary was convinced that it would change everything. Descriptions I've read of Bronstein and Blackmore make it obvious that they embody the heart and soul of D&D. In many ways, one could say that Dave Wesley and Dave Arneson, the creator of Bronstein and Blackmore, were the true creators of D&D. But they played Bronstein and Blackmore for years in their local community. They didn't think to make something more of their games. It took Gary Gygax and his excitement for creating and publishing to make D&D a reality. In the remainder of this episode, I'll discuss how the fantasy game became the reality of Dungeons and Dragons. Part 2. Playtesting with the kids. The most crucial step in the creation of any game is playtesting. Without testing out the rules, things can break down quickly. Players can find loopholes or exploitations. The pacing can be too slow or too fast. Gary was no stranger to these pitfalls. He'd spent uncountable hours playtesting for his own games and other game designers. 
But on that late night in 1972, when Gary finished writing the fantasy game, he was too excited to wait for his normal group. He wanted to try it out right away. He invited his two eldest children to play. 13-year-old Ernie and 11-year-old Elise were recruited and brought into his office. Ernie and Elise sat on the couch while Gary stood behind a filing cabinet. He reasoned that being hidden was ideal for playing an omniscient narrator. He could be the booming disembodied voice of God in a world of his own creation. To quote Gary, it was late in fall of 1972 when I completed a map of some castle ruins, noted ways down to the dungeon level, singular, and invited my 11-year-old son Ernie and 9-year-old daughter Elise to create characters and adventure. This they did, and around 9 p.m. they had to come back from such imaginary daring do, put their index card character sheets aside, and get ready for bed. They had a marvelous time and wanted to keep playing. During that first game, Ernie took the role of Tenzer the Wizard, Elise took the role of Alisa the Cleric, and Gary introduced them to his dungeon, Castle Greyhawk. Gary quickly explained the rules and narrated the story of their exploration as Ernie and Elise faced off against the first monsters in the first adventure of D&D. They defeated the various vermin that infested Castle Greyhawk. Ernie and Elise were rewarded with a chest full of copper coins. When the two attempted to take the treasure, they discovered the chest was too heavy to carry. They were unable to get the treasure out of the dungeon, and anyway, it was their bedtime. Afterward, Gary returned to his office and started writing the second level of Castle Greyhawk. The next night, Gary invited friends over to try out the fantasy game. During the first half of 1973, Gary continued to playtest the game with his various groups of friends in Lake Geneva. Additionally, he sent copies to a dozen colleagues in the wargaming community. Arneson did his own playtesting in St. Paul, but feedback from Arneson to Gygax was not always free-flowing or well-received. Dave Arneson once said of this situation, quote, it was much more of a case of me providing various ideas and concepts, but not having any say as to how they were used. Gary was making revisions with every playtest. He became the keeper of the game. He took the lead on nearly every decision, and this included naming the game. It's rumored that he created a large list of alliterative names. I imagine this list to include entries like Swords and Sorcerers, Wizards and Warriors, Tombs and Taverns, the rumor also said that Gary read this list to his youngest daughter, Cindy, who picked Dungeons and Dragons as her favorite. I grew up in the aftermath of the Satanic Panic of the 1980s, and I'll cover that history later, but for me, it's easy to think of D&D as a taboo game, something that parents would not allow their children to play. But hearing that Gary wrote and tested the game with children in mind seems so obvious. He was, after all, inspired in large part by books and comics that he read when he was younger. In addition, pop culture has associated D&D with nerdy suburban boys. But it's satisfying to know that that first game was equally represented by both genders. Sadly, that equality was short-lived. Part 3 
publishing an innovative game in a faltering economy without any money. In 1973, the stars did not seem to align for Dungeons and Dragons. The US economy had been in a tailspin for the previous year, and the gaming industry was a luxury that most Americans could afford to cut from their budgets. Gary had been working part-time for Guidon Games over the previous three years. They were the company that published Chainmail with Gary. But Guidon was struggling to keep the lights on. They were a small company, and it was a side business for Don Lowry whose main business was a hobby store. So when Gary sent Don Lowry a copy of Dungeons and & Dragons and asked him to help publish and distribute it, Don immediately scoffed. The final manuscript was around 150 pages. The printing costs alone would be more than Guidon had invested in any game. Don didn't see enough potential in the game. He graciously declined Gary's offer. Later that year, Don Lowry was forced to shut down Guidon Games due to the slump in the gaming industry. Gary then turned to Avalon Hill. At the time, they were the biggest players in the wargaming world. He reasoned that if they would hear him out, they would see the potential of D&D. They had to. In many ways, they were the only hope he had left for D&D. They were the only publisher Gary had ties to that was big enough to print and distribute this game. In mid-1973, he presented the game to Avalon Hill, he claimed to them that it would sell 50,000 copies. Gary later recalled of his interactions with Avalon Hill, I mentioned D&D to Avalon Hill, but the reception was a trifle chilly. The establishment was not about to jump into something as different and controversial as fantasy. They laughed uproariously at the idea. Arneson recalled the situation similarly, saying, They couldn't understand a game with no winners and losers. That just went on and on. This was the low point, the point where everything seemed darkest and there was no hope in sight. But Gary never stopped fighting before. He'd been in this position before. He'd published numerous games on his own. This time, however, the costs were high, and the stakes for his family and his personal finances were higher. Gary and his wife and children were living on food stamps and a shoe cobbler's income. But he believed in this game. He believed it would change everything about wargaming. Unfortunately, to get his dream off the ground, he needed money that he didn't have. He turned not to Dave Arneson, but to his oldest and best friend, Don Kay. Don had seen Dungeons & Dragons in action. He knew how engaging it was. He was sold. Don took out $1,000 of his life insurance policy, and in October of 1973, Don and Gary established Tactical Studies Rules, better known as TSR. Unfortunately, $1,000 wasn't enough to get D&D off the ground. When completed, a copy of Dungeons & Dragons would consist of three 50-page books with additional materials packaged in a cardboard box. It was a high-cost printing and assembly job. With only $1,000, the printing alone would bankrupt the new company. Instead, the two focused on publishing a smaller game to raise funds for publishing D&D. That game was called Cavaliers and Roundheads, Unfortunately, in no time it was clear that Cavaliers and Roundheads would not pay for D&D. Sales were meager, and Gary and Don were chomping at the bit to get D&D underway. But there was hope just around the corner. In 
Shortly before establishing TSR, Gary and Don became friends with a gamer from Illinois named Brian Bloom. Brian helped the two with marketing for Cavaliers and Roundheads. In November 1973, after Gen Con 6, Brian brought a proposition to Gary and Don. He would invest $2,000 in the company in exchange for one-third share of the company. This would be enough to print 1,000 copies of the game and get D&D up and running. In December 1973, Don and Gary accepted the offer. At this point, the three entrepreneurs had everything they needed. They worked at a feverish pace to get the manuscript to print. When the printed materials arrived at Gary's house, the three came together in Gary's basement to assemble the game. The three books and additional material were packaged in a cardboard box with fake wood grain. The printing and assembly process took between November and December of 1973, and in January of 1974, the team was ready to distribute the game. The title on the cover was Dungeons and Dragons, Rules for Fantasy Medieval Wargame Campaigns, Playable with Paper and Pencil and Miniatures. The price tag on the box was $10, equivalent to $60 in 2018. So there we are. Between December of 73 and January of 74, D&D became a reality. There's one thing about that first edition that puts the whole story in perspective for me. It's the cover of that original game. It was an image of a knight in full armor on horseback, an image that was copied from the cover of a magazine, Stranger Tales. That magazine was almost certainly something that Gary pulled off the shelf in his office. I just imagine Gary sitting at his desk, tracing the cover of that magazine, a very unprofessional image in my mind, and such a long way from the dozens of artists who work on every D&D publication these days. And while copying that image was a copyright infringement, Gary and Don clearly didn't think that was a problem. The wargaming community was small, and in their community, everyone was constantly borrowing things from everyone else. And that was just how the wargaming community worked. Unfortunately, Gary soon had to learn that running a successful business and being a successful part of the wargaming community couldn't always coincide. Next time on Knowledge History D&D, we cover 1974 through 1975, the startup years for TSR, these were treacherous years for Gary that nearly saw an end to Dungeons and Dragons. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about our sources, the music in this episode, or the history of D&D, go to dungeonsandtangents.net. Script by Eric Dewhurst. Titles by Jen Kunra. Robert Sherman apologizes for not helping with this episode. He said he had better things to do.